0: Welcome to my podcast, I'm your host Stefano and this is When Leaders Talk, a podcast about leadership but most importantly about leaders. This is episode 3 and our guest today is William Toddy, a retired US Navy officer, a submariner just to be precise, who transitioned successfully transition to the civilian world and became the CEO of a company called Spartan, a company in the defense industry. Other than a, a former navy officer and CEO of a, a former CEO of a, of a company, is also the author of a book called "From CEO to CEO: From Commanding Officer to CEO," where actually he, he uh, shared his experience and the challenges that he had to face in the transition. Is a book, of course, is aimed to help those changing life from the military, those leaving the military to start a new path, a new career. So William has a very broad experience and we will go through his early areas areas in in the Navy to his later career in the defense industry and all the challenges and the failures and the problems he had to face and the special situation he found himself into like 9 11 when he was in the pentagon when the airplane crashed or in 2013 when some people of his company were in the navy yard in september uh, when the uh, some mass shooting happened and 12 people died it's not only that we will understand how he ambitions leader you know like a building blocks Lego blocks and uh, he will describe these Lego blocks that uh, will constitute a good leader and being probably the most important block is integrity together with vision having a vision having a vision is a kind of having a direction knowing where to go and is fundamental because you cannot just be at sea without knowing what, what your next protocol is going to be. So I really hope you will enjoy this interview, at least as much as I enjoy it. If you like it, subscribe. You can also follow me on other social media like TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, also, for more information about coaching and the services that I provide, you can go on masteryoursea.com. All right. So I hope you will enjoy it and I will leave you to the interview. Ciao. So welcome to to today's episode and our guest is William Toddy. William Toddy, as I said, is a retired officer from the U.S. Navy. So it's kind of colleagues of mine. We speak the same language at least. Welcome, William. Welcome, Bill.
1: Well, the language we speak is both Navy and English because mio italiano è cattivo.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Actually, I haven't mentioned this. Uh, You have Italian origin, so... But yeah, we'll go with English. (laughs) I think it's much better. Much better. Okay, William. So we were going to talk about leadership. This is the podcast and and it's all about leadership and leaders. So the first question that I, I always ask is, Do you have a definition of leadership and would you mind sharing with us?
1: You know, there's many definitions of leadership, of course, but the one I like to go with is the one I actually learned a little bit in the Navy, but really started to congeal for me when I was in industry. And and my definition of leadership is creating a strategic vision for your organization that's going to take you into the future, and then getting your people, employees, crew members, and the Navy to rally around that vision and help you carry forward. So that's it's, so there's two elements to that. The, the first element is creating that vision, which is very important, the old saying in english is any road if you don't know where you're going any road will get you there but the, the vision is actually maybe more important than as important let's say than getting your people to to help take you there because without that vision you may move in in some direction but it may not be the right direction so those two elements are very important Unfortunately, most people think of leadership as a method of motivating. And that's only a tiny fraction of what you need to embody true leadership.
0: I like it, you know, and, you know, going back to our roots as uh, Navy officers, having a vision is like having a destination. So, you know where to drive the boat you were to steer you know your course yeah. and and you want to go there and you want the people with you to go there i I love it so how do you and how, and how to keep
1: from running aground, right how to keep right. from absolutely you know making some accident that's going to cause you to damage your boat but go ahead
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, and actually, you say something very important because it's not just reaching the destination, but it's getting there successfully and safely, right? And you know, it's it's, it's also the way how, you, know, you get there, and that's and that's the concept that I'm trying to stress a lot uh, in the also in this in this podcast. So, how do you mm, communicate your vision to the people working with you?
1: It requires many. iterations of the vision said in different ways uh, in order to motivate the different constituencies because your people are not monolithic. There's just not one single collection of people. There are different groups of people, different demographics of people, each with different motivations and purposes. And the vision will look different to each one of those demographics. So you've got to communicate it in different ways that will make sense to each demographic. So that's point number one. Point number two is 100% of your team needs to understand the mission and their role in the mission. And, And I joke that Everybody, from the people, the engineers who are building your new designing your new products to the people who are cleaning the bathrooms need to understand what their place in is in getting you to where you need to go because everybody has a role in that mission. And without everybody pulling together, it's the old story that with with for lack of a nail, the shoe was lost, for lack of a shoe, the horse was lost, and so on and so forth the kingdom was lost. And so that's really one of the important things. So uh, the way I would do it is, I repeat the message over and over again, not only when I conduct what we call in the Navy all hands meetings, or in in, the, in industry, our employee meetings, but start every communication with that theme, repeat it over and over and over again, build it into your mission, into your core values of the organization so that you're reinforcing the theme every chance you get.
0: Yeah, and that's important also because you wanna tell every single member of your crew, of your team, how important is the role to achieve the goal, right? So, and going back to, once again, to uh, the the ship, you know, you uh, might have the guy on the bridge who have, who has pretty much a clear picture of, of everything that's mm-hmm. going on. And then you have the guy in the, uh, the cook that basically doesn't see them much. So you need to make, make them understand how important it is, right? I, I really like it. You know. And how different is to communicate the vision from a military environment compared to um, a civilian in, in environment?
1: So it turns out that it's more different than people want to admit. When I first made my transition to industry, when I was still in the Navy, the Navy would teach us classes on what civilian industry is going to be like for us. And these classes were taught by people who really never worked in civilian industry. They were hired to teach a course. The curriculum was built by people who were not qualified to write the curriculum. And one of the things that they told us in this training that I really wanted to believe, every one of my classmates who were leaving the Navy really wanted to believe, I've come to call the great lie. And the great lie that they told us in that training was all your future lead company, all your future company wants from you is good leadership. Now, of course, we want to believe that because we all think when we're leaving the military that we're good leaders. So we must have all we need to succeed in the future. If we would have given just a little bit of thought, we would have realized that no, good leadership is not all you need. If it was, I was a submarine captain, right? I could go to an Air Force fighter wing and take command. I have good leadership isn't that enough? It's not enough. You actually need to know something about those fighters that you're leading, right? Same is true in industry. And we should have been, we shouldn't have been surprised that what they were telling us was a lie. In industry, you actually need to know something about the mission, the organization, the methods, the procedures of the business that you're trying to lead. And in fact, there's a saying that i developed after i joined industry you know i tell to my military friends that leadership is hard but it's even harder when you're leading people who can actually quit and, then, and when i my submarine right my crew may not have liked something i decided but there was no place for them to go they were not leaving that submarine so that that allowed me to do certain things that i could not get away with yeah, in industry, because yeah, you, you can, do those
0: same things. Yeah, you, you can push a little bit, right? When when you are in command of a submarine or ship, you know, and they know, you know, that the people, you know, they are, they have a strong discipline and sense of belonging and things. So they will follow you to a certain extent, of course, to some extent. Yeah.
1: But when you're in industry, they vote with their feet, right? And if they don't believe in your mission or your vision, or if your leadership behaviors mm-hmm make them feel like you think they're in the military. And I saw people act that way in business. It, it did not end well, you know, then they're going to leave.
0: Yeah. And you in your book, From CEO to CEO, actually, you describe beautifully how different is the, the, being a leader in the military compared to being a leader in, uh, in the industrial world or outside the military, by the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and you have this double experience, kind of two mm-hmm. phases of your life. So, I'm going to ask you a double question. Right? <laughs> so, about challenges, you know, because, of course, as you've wrote in the book, it, when the, mm, the sea is calm, everyone is good at the helm. Um, right. But, so, what was the most difficult challenge you faced in both the phases of your life?
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly when I was captain of the submarine, we were tasked with some very challenging missions that I cannot talk about. Um, These were, I would say, high-risk missions. Mm -hmm. And it was simply a method of making sure that you you completed the mission without getting anyone hurt. And actually, as a submarine, you've got to complete the mission without being detected, without anybody knowing you're there. And so... There's, without, di- without doubt, that was the most challenging leadership experience I had in the military. Um, you know, there, on, I was in the Pentagon on 9-11, and that was a challenging personal experience, not so much a leadership experience, in dealing with, you know, the impact of the plane and the aftermath and trying to rescue people and things like that. That was, I would say, that was the worst day of my time on active duty. But the leadership challenge was while I was captain of the submarine. In industry, my toughest challenge was during a, an incident that occurred in 2013. I think that's the right year, maybe it's 2012. No, I think it's 2013. It's referred to as the Washington Navy Yard shooting, yeah, where the Washington yes. Navy Yard yes. active shooter yeah. killed 12 people. And I had many employees in that base working in that building where the shooting was taking place. And I actually had to fall back on some of my old military training to take command of the situation, track everybody down, make sure everybody was safe, communicate with the various entities, like corporate leaders, and and to, not, to some extent, you know federal government leaders as well, the FBI and organizations like that who were involved with the on-scene reaction. Um, So we could share what my employees knew about the event in a way that would not further endanger them. So that was a very challenging leadership day. Me personally and interestingly, it felt more like events that I needed to deal with when I was in the military than events that I needed to deal with when I was in industry.
0: And what are the qualities that you use the most during those challenges, you know, in both, actually, in all the episodes that you described? Yeah.
1: So there are different leadership styles, of course. You can can lead in a very kind of um, directive way where you take control and start giving orders and things like that. And strangely... Both of those examples that I gave to you just now required me to draw from that leadership style where it's not, not a coaching, not a, you know, lifting style. It requires action right now. You, you you listen to information. When you think you have enough information to make a decision, you make a decision and give guidance. So those two incidents I described both required that leadership style and the interesting thing is in industry i almost never used that leadership style only during crisis right that was i required to use that leadership style 99.5 percent of the leadership opportunities in industry i used a more contemplative coaching you know leadership style where i tried to bring everybody along Together, rather than giving guidance and orders, and um, and so there's a lot to say. I call this situational leadership, where you look at the situation and the factors. You, you decide how long do I have to react to the situation? Is this something where a decision needs to be made immediately, or can the decision wait for consensus? Or more information or, and and then you adapt the leadership style to the situation to make sure that you aren't abusing. Because if you use the wrong leadership style in a given situation, you could actually make things worse. So it's very important to be very deliberate in how you use your, select your leadership style.
0: And you touch a very important point now. How to be flexible in in using the leadership techniques or styles? You can be more democratic sometimes, more coaching, or just more direct, military style if you want, and more excited, like okay, do this, this, and this, and try probably later on to uh, make sense of everything, analyze um, what went, how the thing, the action went. So, and talking about actions, I'm
1: sorry. Now, I was going to say, people leaving the military are often very good at the directive leadership style. And many times they have to learn that other leadership, the softer leadership style, the coaching, contemplative, bringing everybody along leadership style. For them, it's a new skill. And for people that I work with who are in industry who've never served in the military, they, they frequently assume that military people are just plain old good leaders and they don't give it much thought about, well, they may be good leaders in one situation, but not in another. And they put them in situations where they are required to use the softer leadership style. And it's a skill they haven't developed yet. And they fail. And this is one of the reasons I wrote the book is because when that happens, the, the industry leaders who've never served in the military get very confused by the failure, the leadership failure that's being exhibited by their military veteran employees. And they often just say, well, this person is is um, not good to have around. And they end up letting them fail rather than saying, you know what, he might require coaching just like everybody else. They say, well, heck, he's supposed to be a good leader. Clearly he's not, they let him fail and then they let him go. And I joke because I call this, you know, because in, in America in the United States, oftentimes civilians will say, thank you for your service. And I joke this, this becomes for companies. It becomes, thank you for your service. You're fired. <laughs> and so I say, look, don't say thank you for your service. If you're going to, if there's a chance, you're not going to sustain this employee, right? (laughs) Um, So treat them like a normal employee and let them surprise you. But don't assume they know more than they do about how to work or behave in a civilian company. And that's been the thrust of my interaction with industry for the last year or so.
0: And that's, that's something that yeah, still, you know, you, you've write something like this in the book, and there is one chapter actually, where you described your experience, the first time you were you, you enter in a, in a company as a, um, a an employer, basically, you know, and, uh, you know, and there was a term that, that, that stick to my mind, it was a freeloader, right? So can you can you mm-hmm. describe how how you uh, cope with this transition? What was the yeah. um, your winning quality, if you want, or actually the thing that you you did wrong?
1: Yeah. So, initially, when I joined the industry, I was very fortunate when I that I got promoted twice in two years, and that never happens in the military, right? <laughs> so I was, you know, I was really wait. You don't. I don't have to wait for my turn. I don't have to wait for my seniority level to come up. right? These other guys that have been here longer than me, they don't get promoted first. No, you get promoted when you're ready and they think you can do the job. And so I don't know whether I was a little bit overconfident or, um, you know, thought that I was, you know, kind of the the word is Teflon coated, right? And everything's gonna slide off me. I'm never going to suffer the uh, outcome of my poor performance. I don't know why, what I thought was going to happen, but I think I got promoted a little too fast. And I started, you know, kind of um, not not performing up to expectations within the company. And so two things happened. But well, first of all, first thing that happened is there there was a group of senior leaders who basically started... Treating me differently, like at at arm's length, where they, it was clear to me that mm, they weren't being the friendly, helpful, you know, bosses and leaders that I had been used to in that company since I joined. It was almost like I had a disease or something. (laughs) They they don't want to get close to me anymore. Oh, okay. That was the first thing. The second thing. (laughs) is that one of my bosses well, no, might actually my direct boss, I overheard him referring to re- retired military people like me as freeloaders. And I'd never heard that expression before. And then when I pulled the string on it, it, it became obvious that he, he believed because I was being paid retirement money by the Navy while I was earning a check from my employer my new company that it's like I'm a freeloader right I'm I'm living off of gift money in essence now this guy had never been in the military he didn't know what we do to earn that retirement check how much you suffer over decades right and um and he was just being a jerk but you know that that really opened my eyes to how some people thought of us, retired military people who were in industry that they... There wasn't very many, to be honest with you. A very small percentage of people uh, look down on you or sneer at you. They think that, well, if you were really talented, you would never have stayed in the Navy, in the military. You would have gotten out and started making real money at a younger age, right? you never would have stayed in for retirement. So that's the preconceived notion that they have. But but in the first case where I said, I might've gotten promoted a little too quick, it was finally my boss's boss, not my boss, but my boss's boss called me up and and I was in the UK at the time in the hotel room. It was late at night, um, UK time. He was in California. He called me up, and I hadn't gone to sleep yet, but I was getting ready to go to sleep. And he said, Bill, we need to have a talk. You're screwing this up. (laughs) Those are the exact words he used, right? Uh, We we trusted you. We promoted you very quickly. Um, We've given you a lot of responsibility. I was in charge of a more than billion-dollar business at that point in time, just two years into my civilian career. And he's telling me, you're letting us down. You're screwing this up. When you come back, we need to have a long talk about how we're going to make this right. Or you may not be in this job very long. And it was like, what? No one had ever told me in my entire Navy career. And in my industry career to that point, no one had ever told me I wasn't doing magnificent. (laughs) This is the first time anybody had ever told me that I might not be, you know,
0: the best right. guy ever. Yeah. Exactly.
1: yeah, It was very eye opening. And I had to go back to California where, you know, wasn't where I lived, but where he worked and sit down with him and find out what I was doing wrong and I had to do some soul searching.
0: How, how did you cope with it? You know, as you said, you were coming from a successful career in the military where you were always great, fantastic. And I mean, I'm sure that by any standards you, you were still very, very uh, efficient and effective in the civilian world. But you were coming from an environment more, um, I mean, in a different environment. And you found yourself in this uncomfortable situation of being mm-hmm. uh, not as effective or not judged in the same way um, mm-hmm. compared to the military. How did you cope with it? How did you improve your... Um, your relationship with a new company
1: yeah the first, well first of all I took every word he said to heart I didn't get defensive I didn't push back I listened to him and, and I did you know in the computer world you say you're going to reboot the computer you're going to restart it and I said I've got to reboot my life here and f- start it over again find out what I'm doing wrong then i asked for a 360 have everybody evaluate me bosses coworkers employees and tell me what i need to improve for example i went to my peer who was the vice president i was the vice president in the profit and loss business unit she was the vice president of human resources in my in my business unit right so she, she was my peer and i said so has this conversation been going on Behind my back, um, have you been talking about my performance? Yeah. Okay, so what do I need? What am I doing wrong? What do, what do I need to improve? And I was shocked at how little help she was. <laughs> she She couldn't tell me what I was doing wrong or what I needed to improve. She just said very vague, useless things. Well, your business acumen needs to improve. Well, what? that's what they're saying. Well, what does that mean, my business acumen? Because clearly I understand the customer. The customer was DOD. Right. So that aspect, I mean, clearly I understand DOD better than any one of my peers who's never been in the military. Okay, so that's not it. We're hitting our financial targets. So financial, so that can. So tell me, I need more information, right? And... She wasn't helpful. When I did this 360, what I generally, what I figured out over time was the matter was more of the way I communicated progress to um, the, the business, the company, was not the style that they were used to. And there were times when I was silent on things that I probably should have spoken more about. There were times when I was too revealing when i said too much about challenges we were having whereas other leaders in my at my level were more secretive they didn't want to say as much when they were having challenges because they didn't want to make themselves look like they were having difficulties or whatever so i was it was a cultural thing i was saying too much in areas i shouldn't should have said less and i wasn't saying enough in areas that where i should have said more and once I figured that out, it turned out it wasn't so much a performance issue as an integration into the company's culture issue problem, right? And then I was able to correct that. And it took a while for me to, it's a lot of steps where I make a couple steps forward, then one step back, a couple more. Then I was, then I did better. And then those questions stopped being asked. So at that point, I said, okay, but I've kind of, there, there's a group of people that um, have uh, an opinion of me that I'm not sure I'll ever change. Maybe this is a good time to look to open my aperture and find out if somebody else in another company might need my help. And I actually answered a phone call from a headhunter that asked me if I was willing to take on consider another job with Hewlett Packard with HP and and that was very intriguing to me and, and I actually jumped at that chance and it was a great great company and great position I got out of that so I turned this negative into a very big positive
0: yeah and then you need a lot of uh being in, uh, you need to be humble, humble to to do this and you you actually there is a you you mention in your book you need to lower your rank right you need Mm. to understand that if you come out even as an admiral or a superstar general or um, anything like this once you transition you need to approach the new life in a different way you need to understand that your rank is gone and you're starting i'm not saying all over again but you know surely from a from a different level you need to learn a lot as you as you mentioned about the culture about the people you have around, how different their motivation is, how different their approach to the work is, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't wanna wanna spoil the old book, so, (laughs) otherwise. (laughs) This
1: is an important point, because when I first joined, I, I joined the company in a leadership training program, and I was a captain, Navy captain, and it kind of bothered me that they thought I needed leadership training right but what a really (laughs) but but i swallowed my pride and i said okay i don't know this world i know my world i don't know this world so if they think i could benefit from this leadership training and they're willing to invest in me i should be willing to take the position and so i joined that company and when i was first there i would ask my boss even though i was in this leadership training program You know, I think we should do this. What do you think? And he would say, go ask this female employee. I'll call her Alice. Go ask Alice. Okay. uh, Every time I would go to a question, he would say, well, go ask Alice. Well, I'm in my mid-40s. Alice is like 26. And I said, you know, I might have been the captain in the Navy, but here this 26-year-old outranks me (laughs) in this company. Right? She she knows way more than I know. And that's when it occurred to me, I'm an ensign all over again, <laughs> lowest rank in the Navy. Right, She's the lieutenant, and I'm the ensign here. And so in my book, I do say, when you join industry, you have to understand you're the second lieutenant or ensign <laughs> all over again. Um, doesn't matter if you come out as an admiral or a general. That 24-year-old knows more than you do. So you have to understand that and, and act like it.
0: And that's beautifully said and it's very important. I love it. So uh, let's go back to your military life. Okay, let's put the uniform on again if you want. Or I mean, just, okay. just uh, visually. The good news um, is it still fits. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Happy to um, say that. Well, mine too, likely. Uh, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So the, the thing is, um, and You mentioned kind of a failure almost failure once you transition. What about your military life? You know, can you describe a moment uh, that, of failure, actually? And the most important part it would be how did you deal with the failure? What did you do of this experience? How did you uh, manage the communication towards your team or your crew and your people? Mm-hmm.
1: I was very blessed during my military life as, you know, some, my, interestingly, I never, I never thought I would make the Navy a career. Every time, from the moment I was commissioned as an ensign, my assumption was that I would do my five years that I was required, and then transition out. But then every every time that happened where I was facing a decision to leave the Navy, I was given another job that was very interesting to me. And I said, I was offered offered another job that was very interesting to me. So I said, let me stay in for this job. and, and, And then I'll make a decision, right? And then one more, and then one more. And before I knew it, time had gone by. The other aspect of doing this was that, I was never trying to um, focus on my career and be political and get the right jobs to get promoted and say the right things and play golf with the right people. I never worried about any of that. I didn't play golf. I didn't, I didn't ever um, pursue the kinds of jobs that were going to get me promoted. And yet, I would be surprised when I would learn, wow, you, you you were selected for command. You were selected for major command, for Commodore, from um, for squadron command. Because uh, I didn't, when I was selected for these, I'm not even sure I knew that I was under consideration. <laughs> <laughs> I was just notified, you've been selected, you've been selected, you've been selected. So I rode this wave almost like a surfer, right? And I rode this wave until I decided, you know what, I, I've got to make a decision now to go into civilian industry, because if I wait longer, I'll be too old to have a real civilian career. So I won't have enough time in my civilian life to have a real civilian career. But to answer your question, well, the reason I give you that introduction is because I never positioned myself in a way where I was trying to be political. Okay. to calm people's feelings, to make my bosses feel good, to compliment them. I always just tried to do my job. And sometimes that was good, and sometimes that was not so good. So the the, the thing that comes to mind, to answer your question, when I was Commodore, I was co- commander of a squadron of six submarines. And as Commodore, one of my jobs was to make sure that the submarine, a submarine in my squadron, is properly trained and certified to go on its next mission. And I then I provide the properly trained and certified mission to the forward deployed admirals that can use the submarine in the, in the way they want to use it and i had one submarine that was not performing to standards now you know i was experienced in the mission that it was going to be tasked doing from when i was captain of a submarine so i knew exactly what that submarine needed to do from my time as captain and i knew that this submarine was not going to do well if we sent it on a similar mission they just had not developed the skills necessary to perform on that mission. And they gave me a timeline, and at the end of the timeline, the submarine wasn't ready. And I told the Admiral, I can't certify this submarine for that mission. I can give me another month, I can get another submarine ready, but this submarine's not gonna be ready when you need it to do that mission. He was not happy. (laughs) And he said, But it's your job, and I I know, I agree, it's my job, this is my failing, but if I send that submarine out and tell you it's ready and it gets in trouble, that's on me, it's not on you, that's on me. And I can't do it. And he pressured me a great deal to, and the interesting thing is this Admiral had never done one of those missions himself. So, you know, from my point of view, he really doesn't didn't know what it takes, what skills you need to develop in order to succeed on that kind of mission. I did. And so I was not going to succumb to his pressure to to, to declare the submarine ready when I didn't think it was ready. And, um, yeah, I don't know if that ever really affected me from a professional standpoint, um, but I knew I didn't care. Because I could sleep at night.
0: Well, you was true to yourself, right? You were honoring your values, right? I mean, then, then mm-hmm. you didn't want to betray your beliefs and whatever is your system of values that, that makes that's right the, the leader that you are. Okay, and let mm-hmm. me ask you this then: you know, what is the most important value or the most important values that you have? You know, what is for you? something that a leader, a you, has to have?
1: That's a tough question because it requires so many, right? But if I were to say one thing, it would be integrity. right? Integrity also implies honesty and a whole bunch of other things. But again, um, I've worked around some leaders that were thought very highly of, that were very politically, savvy that were very that they were very gregarious, likable, um, that other people, including other their bosses, really, really liked. But you knew they lacked integrity. And sure. if they were given a free reign, sooner or later they were going to get themselves and their organization in trouble. And and you could predict that it was going to happen. You may not know exactly when or where or how, but you knew sooner or later it was going to happen. And in almost every case, it was a failing, failure of integrity and not being honest with themselves, not being honest with their bosses, and um, creating this atmosphere of success. that was kind of, you know, masking underlying failure, and that never goes well.
0: No, I, I totally agree. And uh, you know, you mentioned integrity, and earlier we talked about vision. If a leader uh, was like a, a building block, you know, you can you can build a leaders with Legos. <laughs> How would you? Mm-hmm. What, what else would you add to it?
1: Um, the the truth is, and this kind of is implied by my um, my earlier statement that. When I talked about the great lay, the great lie, all your future employer wants from you is good leadership. The reason that's not true is because you actually need to know something about what you're doing, about whether you're flying a plane or driving a submarine or running a company. You actually need to know something. If you're going to be running an IT company about the likely failure mechanisms Of that business right and so and how to prevent those failures from happening so one of the legos has to be a good technical understanding of the foundations of your business because that's going to inform you about where the the we also said earlier you don't want to run aground you don't want to run into the shoal water where the shoal waters are as as a technical person who has Physics undergraduate, engineering graduate school, right? I understand enough about the technical aspects of my various jobs to know maybe I couldn't design things anymore. I didn't have those skills, but I could, I kind of knew enough to know when I was being lied to. And if I didn't have that technical background and I was running a technical company, all I could do is accept what people were telling me. I don't think I would have been as successful as I was. So a good technical understanding now, if, if you're doing finance company, that technical understanding is an understanding of finance, right? If you're doing a recruiting company, that's an understanding of you know employability and human traits and characteristics that are gonna help people succeed. I'm not saying everybody needs to be an engineer, not at all. I'm talking about the technical aspects of whatever business you're in. So another Lego needs to be uh, communication. Um, You you either need to be able to communicate in ways they're they're going to um, connect with your customers, shareholders, and employees, or, and here's another Lego, you need to be self-aware. You need to be self-aware enough to know, I don't have that ability. I'm not a good communicator. So I need somebody who can fill in that gap for me, who is a good communicator. So that that person will do the thing I cannot do because I don't have the skill. Okay? So it's self-aware. The next one I would say is management skills. And in the book, I do talk about the difference between leadership and management. management is more mechanical, it's more um, transactional, it's more event-by-event, tracking progress, measuring progress, um, using methods like Six Sigma or Lean. And again, if you don't have those skills yourself, you need to supplement yourself with somebody who does. And by the way, those skills pertain to every business type, not just manufacturing, but you know what are the metrics you're using if you're in recruiting what are the metrics you're using you know, to show success if you're in marketing those metrics apply to every business type and every military organization so that's another one um i'm running out of legos so
0: <laughs> it's sure. okay it's okay actually it's a lot and even when you mentioned self-awareness you know it's it's very simple to talk about self-awareness, it's very difficult actually to really get in touch with our inner self, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complex, it's, yeah, it's a complex process. How did you, how mm-hmm. did you do that? How have you done this, you know, and actually it's a, it's a continuous process as well. So how did you do every day? How did you get in touch with yourself, your, yeah, your inner self?
1: You know, I talked earlier about the fact that I never intended for the Navy to be my career. I was always uh, operating under the assumption that this would be my last job. Um, that, and from the time I was at the Academy, from the time I was at Annapolis, I was always introspective, asking myself, can I do this? Can I get through this Academy? Can I graduate? I didn't have trouble academically, I had trouble with the physical aspects of the academy, the running and the obstacle courses and stuff. I was skinny and wasn't very strong. Um, And so that was my challenge. So I started out very young, being very introspective. What are my weaknesses and what do I need to do to supplement or to overcome those weaknesses? And my first job, being a junior officer on a submarine is not easy. It's a very challenging time, uh, something that even the academy doesn't prepare you for. Because there are days when you're going to be awake without sleep for seventy-two hours on a difficult mission, and um, nothing prepares you for that to, except going through it. And and it's you know there are times when you're just not having fun it's a lot of hard work and you say to yourself is this for me long term how many years can i do this you have to be very introspective and say yes i got through this but what what about the next time i'm assigned to a submarine can i get to, through this again um, yeah i'll be in a higher rank and a higher position but it doesn't mean it's all going to be easy so all the way through my life, I had to find myself, I had to ask myself those questions. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? If I go this path, what do I need to do? If I go this path, what do I do, need to do? Which one is more interesting? Which one is easier? <laughs> and if, if the more interesting one isn't the easier one, do I want the easier? Do I, and throughout your life, you need to make those evaluations.
0: Oh yeah. It's a, it's a, I guess an everyday thing. And if you're not introspective, I may add, you can go to a coach that will help. Uh, That's right. yeah. Thank you. And, yeah. And, um, you know, um, so let's go back to the Lego, um, leader. <laughs> is there anything mm-hmm. you will never add to it? Something they would say, oh no, 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 this is, this is really against my idea of leadership.
1: Yes, um, and I had this experience in industry. It caused, caused me to leave one of my employers. So one of my employers, you know, you're always competing to win new programs when you're in industry, right? And that's a healthy thing. In my case, I was working in defense companies for most of my career, not, not all my career, but for most of my career. And so you're trying to win a program and do your best. You're trying to get the best solution at the best price. So the competition is a healthy thing, but you don't always win. Sometimes you don't have the best engineers on a certain pursuit, or you're stretching a little bit too far, or you know um, the customer doesn't believe that the solution you proposed will work, and they decide not to select you. There's several reasons why you could actually be the best choice and not win. It happens. Mm -hmm. Well, it happened to me once, and my boss decided that our best course of action was going to be to go to Congress and get the money taken away from the service for that program, so our competitor wouldn't win either and he asked me to do that he asked me to go engage with congress with our friends in congress and and get them to pull the money out of the appropriation and it was a program i knew that the customer needed and i thought that was plain dirty and i decided i wasn't going to do that so i said no and so yeah was that was that amoral or i think it was unethical i don't think it was necessarily you know it goes back Doing to really uh, hmm?
0: i'm sorry and it goes back actually to the concept of integrity that you mentioned earlier right i mean you were as i say, true to yourself and you kept and this was such an important issue for you uh that was the right um not excuse but the right motivation to or leave the employee, right?
1: yeah. and in this case, we truly believed that we had the better solution, and we truly believed that the customer selected the wrong answer, the wrong wrong solution. Um, and we believed that the that or he believed in his defense, he believed that no new solution was would be better for the customer than the wrong new solution that this would be money wasted because it wouldn't work or it wouldn't work the way the customer believed it would work so i'm not going to challenge his the the reasons he um was he was pushing to get the money withdrawn uh, he he probably in his own mind, th- mind thought he was actually doing the customer a favor not wasting millions of dollars. But from my point of view, look there's rules to the game. We both played the game according to the rules and it didn't go our way. and we're not children who then takes our toys and go home right We're we're gonna live to fight another day. The customer will learn from this experience if we're right, they're going to regret their decision and they're gonna like us even more. But if we do what you want us to do, they're going to hate us. Right. <laughs> and it's not going to go well for us in the law long- so whether we look at it from our point of view or from the customer's point of view in my view it was the wrong thing to do and so that's why i refused yeah and i ended up leaving that company because i didn't like being put in a position where i was asked to do something that i considered to be not in the best interest of our, of our company or our customer
0: yeah and i i completely understand what you're saying and now, going back to your period, actually, both in the Navy and outside the Navy, where you were working in the companies and everything, what was the motivation? What was the force that you know was pushing you to go to work and do a great officer or a great vice president or executive or a CEO? What was, where did you get this motivation from?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was always there. But- I always, no matter what I was doing, even as a junior officer, I always wanted to do a really, really good job. And it wasn't that I was competing with others. I was, in my view, I was competing with myself, right? um, Because I remember one time when I was a junior officer, when, um, you know, there are, let's, let's say, seven or eight junior officers on a submarine. And... I was not ranked number one. And the captain at I was I was ranked number two. And the captain asked, <laughs> does, it, does it bother you that you're ranked behind this person? And I said, Is there anything I could have done better? What did I fail to do? And I knew that person was well liked before. He, he was just easy to like. And I If I'm honest with myself, maybe I wasn't so easy to like, okay? And so I asked the captain, is there anything I failed to do or could have done better? And the captain said, no, no, I can't think of anything. And I said, well, I'm competing with myself, not with him. So if there's nothing I could have done better, I I can make peace with this. And so (laughs) um, the motivation was always there in, in the military, like I said, I never sought to be captain of the submarine. I never sought to be Commodore of a submarine squadron. To me, those things, it would look like those things just dropped in my lap. I was happy they did. And I was eager and enthusiastic and really welcomed the opportunity to serve in those roles. But it wasn't like I was going to be heartbroken if that didn't happen, because I always wondered about my second life and my civilian career. I was always wondering, so maybe, you know, when is the time to move to my second career to see if I could do as well in industry as I've done in the military? Um, Because I think that's gonna be a very different challenge and I'm just interested to see if that's going to work for me or if I'm kind of good at this and not good at anything else. If that's the case, then I'm going to regret leaving the military. And, and but you know, for me, I made the move probably later, maybe maybe later than I should have, by a couple of years. Um, but it still worked out, and, and I'm still very glad that I did make the move and have that full second career in the industry after 26 years in the Navy.
0: Well. You know, we, our time is almost running out, but I, I have a, the last couple of questions. The the, the first one is, um, which is your biggest success and how did you celebrate it?
1: So <laughs> this is gonna sound very strange. Again, you never, you didn't tell me what questions you were gonna ask. So no, I, I didn't prepare. I, for... I
0: like strange, I like strange. So go for yeah, it. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs>
1: When I was at Hewlett Packard, when I did make that jump to the my second company, um, the the business that I was put in charge of had done very very poorly, and it was up for recompete. the 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 largest contract in all of Hewlett Packard was a multi billion dollar contract. was in my business area, and it was up for recompete. And the joke in the Navy, because I still had friends in the Navy, was they were going to compete this, and it was going to be called the Anybody But Hewlett Packard Competition. (laughs) In other words, they were going to welcome anybody winning but us, because we had performed so poorly. And so when I joined and got in that job, I asked myself, oh, my God, this is gonna be the end of my career. This is, <laughs> this is career suicide. I didn't know how bad it was, how much we are hated. But I have 18 months before the co- competition happens to turn this around. Now, understand I had 4,000 employees on that contract. So that's 4,000 mortgages, 4,000 kids' colleges, Four thousand, you know, paychecks, weekly, monthly, weekly, monthly paychecks. So this was a big deal to a lot of people. And and when I took over, it was not looking good. The the Navy was giving us very poor reviews of our performance. So this was a reboot. I talked about reboot earlier. We had to reboot the performance. First of all, we had to bring performance up to standard. So the customer would be willing to consider the possibility that we might win. So that was challenge number one. Challenge number two is educate the customer because it was clear to me they did not know, they did not understand how complex this world that they had created was. They thought it was much simpler than it was. So we had to educate them without talking down to them. Without coming across as arrogant. Oh, you think you're the, we can't live without you? Well, we'll show you. No, we had to educate. So we, we started doing a series of, here's the way the, sy- the system works. Training programs for the customer. So they could say, and we had to do this and we had to do this to make this work. You wanted this to work. You have to understand we had to do this because we were hiding all of that from them because we thought it was proprietary intellectual property, and we didn't want it to get out. But by doing that, we were creating a perception that it was way easier than it really was. And the customer didn't accept the complexity that they had created. And then of course, we had to become way more um, humble. One of the problems was we, we thought we were the smartest people on the planet, and we would talk down to the customer all the time. We would sneer at them. <laughs> you guys think you we can, you can do that. Let me tell you, that'll never work. No, no, no. We Instead, we pivot that and say, okay, we understand the objective. So have you thought about doing this? So we become solution providers, not geniuses <laughs> who you fail to appreciate. <laughs> And so 18 months later, we won the recompete, shocked everybody, including ourselves. You know, the bottom line is it worked and we won the recompete. And it was a $5 billion contract award. So it was the biggest contract in Hewlett Packard history. And we had a party when it was done. You asked, how did we celebrate? We had a party and, and I'll never forget the day that I learned that we had won the contract the re I was driving home after work that day, and a song by Eminem comes on the radio called "Lose Yourself." It's was... Eminem, very famous, song, "Lose Yourself," right? Um, and, and there's words in the song that I've forgotten, but you gotta never let it go. You've got one shot, you know. Take a hold of it and don't let it go. Something like that, right? And so I turned the radio volume way up and I was screaming. I opened the windows and I was screaming out the window because I have 4,000 employees now who know they have a job, right? Yeah. And I was screaming the song out the window and people thought I was crazy. And then when we had the party to celebrate later, as I came on the stage, um, I made the audiovisual people play. M M&M and lose yourself as I walked on the <laughs> stage. Start everybody cheering, right? And they think, "Hey, he swears in this song. Do you are you going to be? Are they going to be okay with this?" And I said, "I don't care. It was a song I heard by Strapiño. We're going to play." And then they went wild, and you know we had a great party, and it was it was very. I still remember that. Still, heart so heartwarming, um, that that time and just bizarre, right? Strange, but true.
0: Well, apparently, I asked the right question, <laughs> and we did not agree on anything. That's too long, right? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But you know, um, so congratulations for the achievement and the celebration, I'll tell you That's uh, it mm. sounded very fun. So the last question, you know, and it's my another question that I like to ask to every guest in, in this podcast is: if someone approaches you, you know, and asks you, "Hey, Bill, I want to be." a great leader, what should I do? What's your answer?
1: Um, make sure you understand where you are. In the Navy we call it taking a fix. Where are you really? Not not where people think you are, not what's. are you self-deluding to believe that you're in a better position than you are. Where are you really? Where do you need to be? Anticipate the future. Where does the organization need to be? Understand what talent you're gonna to need to get there that you don't already have. What talent you have that you won't need. There's the harvest aspect, right? Don't don't provide today yesterday's talent for tomorrow's solutions. How do I need to migrate the talent base? You've gotta look at it holistically from technical ability, from talent, from um, vision, from systems. Do you have the right systems to track progress to get you where you're going to go? Marketing, everything. And then create, do all of that analysis before you create the vision or articulate the vision. Because when you articulate the vision, people need to believe you can actually get there. So you need to have an understanding of how you're going to get there before you state this you know, aspirational vision that everybody then laughs at because they think it's fiction, right? They need to believe in the vision and that you can really do it. And you have to have all of that understood before you go live with your leadership vision. And then it takes daily work to make sure that you're course correcting. Again, to use the Navy expression. You know, we had some wind that pushed us off a little bit. How do I need to correct the course to get to where I need to be? That requires continuous effort. It's not a one aim it and forget it. You never, that never works. Continuous monitoring and continuous correction.
0: That's great. Thank you. Thank you, William. Thank you very much for having been here with us and for sharing your great experience and your, I mean, your transition is not important only for who is in the military and thinking about leaving the military and transitioning in a, in a civilian career, but generally speaking for whoever actually is thinking about changing uh, type of, of, of profession and career. So thank you very much, it has been a pleasure and hopefully we'll meet in person at some point.
1: Absolutely Stefano, thank you very much for having me. <laughs>